from Utah Public Radio, this is Undisciplined. Today on the program, we'll be joined by Karen Lloyd and Marcus Dryman. Karen's work is helping us understand the relationship between microbes, carbon, and the deep earth. Marcus's research is changing the way we think about sharks. It's the microbiologist and the marine fisheries ecologist. That's Undisciplined, coming up next. This is Undisciplined. I'm Matthew LaPlante. Each week on our program, we bring together two researchers from different fields. First, I get to chat with them about their recent work. Then I get to introduce them to one another. And then we get them talking. And all of these crazy, cool, and sometimes sort of scary connections emerge. Because even though the world of research is often very segmented and sometimes even siloed, the world isn't. We're all seeking connections, person by person, little by little, chat by chat. Joining us today from the University of Tennessee at Knoxville, where she studies deep surface microbes, is Karen Lloyd. Along with a team of 24 other researchers from six nations, her recent article in the journal Nature reveals that microbes consume and help trap carbon, a lot of carbon, in subduction zones around the globe. Her most recent TED Talk on the power and glory of microbes is now available to watch online. She last joined us on Undisciplined in November to talk about microbial dark matter. Karen, we're glad to have you back on the program. Thanks for having me back. Last time Karen Lloyd was with us, we paired her up with a human ecologist, Jacob Freeman, who uses trash to study the synchronous rise and falls of societies. Today, we'll be introducing her to an ecologist of another sort. Joining us from Mississippi State University is Marcus Dryman, a marine fisheries ecologist whose recent work has been getting a lot of attention. That's because his findings reveal that one of the world's top predators enjoys a surprising sort of snack food. Marcus, I'm so glad you could join us today. Thank you. It's my pleasure. Let's start today on a journey to the center of the earth. The music you're listening to now is an interlude from Rick Wakeman's rock opera based on the 1864 science fiction novel by Jules Verne, which told the story of a journey deep into the center of our planet. In the century and a half since that novel was published, we've only just begun an exploration of the Earth's subsurface, and we haven't found any dinosaurs down there as the explorers did in Verne's story, but we have discovered microbes. Lots and lots of microbes. Karen Lloyd, how deep have we found microbial life so far? Well, so far, it's kind of hard to put a precise number on it because the way we collect samples is that we collect a bunch of water that comes shooting out of rocks. So we kind of have to guess whether that came from exactly laterally or whether it came from lower or higher. But five kilometers is sort of the accepted maximum depth that we found living things so far. Five kilometers, I mean, like that's a lot of... We can't tunnel down that far, right? Like you said, it's got to shoot up at us. We can't get down there. Yeah. I mean, there are some very, very deep gold mines in South Africa that have gone down about that deep. It has been done, but generally speaking, it's rare. It's really hard to get a sample that's that deep. And it's not just microbes that we find in the deep earth, right? It's also the products they create when they consume carbon. Yeah, they can do all kinds of things. Like pretty much any chemical reaction that you can think about, a microbe can do it. You can sort of think of them as like little helpers for all the chemistry that's happening inside the earth. And and this is kind of the confluence between chemistry and biology and geology, right? These things exist right there. 
Yeah, it's great. I love it. I never did want to pick a discipline when I was in school. Like, I always like, oh, I'll be a biologist. Oh, man, but I love chemistry. Man, I love physics. I don't want to choose. So I just grew up and decided not to make a choice. And, and you can when you work with microbes. Because microbiology is kind of on the cusp of all of these different fields, you, you don't have to choose anymore, right? Yeah, and you always have to rely on other people's expertise because it's really hard to become the, you know, like an er expert in absolutely everything. That's probably impossible, or at least it is for me. I have to rely on really good colleagues and collaborators who are experts in those other fields. Well, and to that end, and I do want to get into what you found, but to that end, you guys worked for this most recent study with 24 different scientists, a lot of them from different disciplines and from all over the earth. What was that experience like? We were so worried going into that. We had a minibus. We were like, man, how are we going to get to these remote remote locations in the jungles of Costa Rica with a minibus? And I don't know, it worked. It just worked. And one thing that made it work is that everyone was happy to be there and they were agreeable and it, it worked. Everybody just sort of attacked it with just purpose and practicality. It was a good group of people. So you were traveling there because you and your team wanted to understand better the importance of subduction zones to the, the process of microbes that consume carbon. Can, can you talk a little bit about this, set, set this up for us? Yes, geologists have hypothesized that there could be some carbon that comes out from deep underneath the earth before the volcanoes. And when I say before the volcanoes, I mean that a subduction zone is created when an oceanic plate offshore is sort of moving into a continental plate. And just because oceanic plates are denser, they sink. And so eventually they go way down deep into the earth and they mix with mantle. I mean, this is well below where we find microbes. This is way too hot. And then they shoot back out in the form of volcanoes. This is what all the volcanoes up and down Central America are. People don't really tend to look at what comes out before the volcanoes, in between the coastline and the volcanoes, because it's kind of obvious that the most carbon is coming out at the volcanoes themselves. But some people had hypothesized before us that there could be carbon coming out before the volcanoes. We're just missing it because it was turning into rock before we sample it. And when you talk about turning a rock, this is really fascinating to me because this is like a natural carbon sequestration process, right? Yeah, that's exactly right. There are microbes that take carbon dioxide and fix it into biomass. This is exactly what plants do up at the surface. They take carbon dioxide from the atmosphere and they turn it into plant biomass. When you remove carbon dioxide from the system, you tend to increase the pH and you make conditions more amenable for the precipitation or the forming of minerals out of the rest of the carbon that's there. One way to think about the magnitude of it is, you know, if you just think about all the volcanoes up and down the Central American arc that are constantly just like belching out all this CO2 plumes, the effect that these guys are having before the volcanoes is enough that it's actually removing some of that carbon. So they're not quite the carbon factories that they would be otherwise. The implications here seem really profound because... Well, not to put too fine a point on this, it's really important right now that we understand where carbon goes when it's removed from the atmosphere and how it comes back to the atmosphere and how long it stays there. So what is it like to be on the cusp of research that has so many really fascinating and potentially really important implications? Uh, it's wonderful. I mean, I, I've long looked for ways to connect up my deep subsurface research to atmospheric research for reasons of, of climate change, which is just the absolute most immediate problem that we have going for humanity right now, I'm convinced. 
but it's often so removed. You know, this stuff is happening on slow cycles. It's happening far away from the atmosphere. But this is a way that actually could connect up the two things. And I find that really, really exciting. Part of the study that I wanted you to help me unpack is the study estimates that there's perhaps about 19% less carbon entering the deep mantle than previously estimated. Is that right? And what does that mean? What are the implications of that? So one thing that people do when they're trying to reconstruct ancient, ancient atmosphere, so well before humans ever evolved, is that they look at how much carbon is flowing in the surface parts of the world and the deeper mantle parts of the world. And there is a connection between these two things through plate tectonics, where you have mantle shooting up in the form of hot spot volcanoes like Hawaii, and then you have subduction zones. But all of that, the amount of carbon that gets transferred between those different parts of Earth dictates how much is left over. We need some CO2 in our atmosphere to keep it warm and livable. So if the subduction zones started dragging down way more CO2, then we wouldn't have enough in the atmosphere. So it's all this delicate balance. But knowing how much there is, is important for people who are trying to reconstruct how Earth came to be. You literally climbed into a volcano to do this research. Tell me about that experience. It was terrifying. (laughs) You know, I want to be responsible and note that the reason that we went into the volcano on that day is that it had been very quiet. And so the chances of it actually erupting on the day we went in it were very low. But given that, it does erupt quite frequently. And that means that what you're climbing down on is not good, hardy rock. These are tiny little scribble, scrabble ejecta that just got pushed out from the last eruption. And down at the bottom of it is a huge lake that is pH 0.85, and it's sulfuric acid, so it's pure battery acid. But the ground you're standing on is a volcano, so it's like 600 degrees Celsius. So you're standing on ground, you've got to keep your boots moving so they don't melt, and the ground is sort of shifting underneath you, and you're barely holding on for dear life. You can't touch it to steady yourself because your hands will burn, and if you fall, you fall on an acid lake. So it was, even without the eruption, it was still pretty terrifying. I'm glad you're here to tell us about it. (laughs) Me too. That's Karen Lloyd. Her team's recent study on the carbon sequestering potential of subduction zones was recently published in the journal Nature. Hey, Karen, there's somebody I want to introduce you to. Can you stick around for a bit? Absolutely. That is the song Shark Fighter by the superhero-themed punk rock band The Aquabats. And never ones to shy away from lyrics with very deep meaning. They sing in this song about a man with wavy blonde hair who wears a topaz necklace and who rides an otter like a motorcycle. Marcus Dryman, I've looked at your photos and you don't appear to have wavy blonde hair, a topaz necklace, or an otter big enough to ride like a motorcycle. But there are plenty of photos of you wrangling sharks from the ocean for your research. How does somebody get into this sort of line of crazy work? I've got to tell you, I'm probably the luckiest guy I've ever known. And that's because I've been able to take something that I've been fascinated by from childhood, which is sharks, like, you know, like a lot of kids. Uh, and I'm just fortunate enough to be able to work on those still into my adult career. So it, it's been one of the great pleasures of my life, for sure. And I've noticed that you bring a lot of students on board your research vessels with you. When you tell them to, like, call their parents and tell them what kind of research they're doing, I'm wondering, like, what their reactions are. (laughs) 
Yeah, that's that's the truth. And, and I always tell those students, I say, listen, when we grab this shark, we're going to be forming a very, very strong trust bond, but it won't be trust that's built up over years. I will be earning your trust immediately and vice versa, because when I grab the head of this shark, I'll be asking you to grab the tail, and I'm trusting that you're going to do that so that we both stay safe. So back in 2010, you're doing some of this work. You're in the Gulf of Mexico. You bring a baby tiger shark on board, maybe not one of the scarier ones, but it's still a tiger shark. And this thing barfs up something really weird. Can you talk about that day? Absolutely. So we were doing routine monitoring, which is a really important part of basic fisheries research. And so it wasn't particularly unusual that we caught the tiger shark. So we brought him on the boat to weigh him, measure him, tag him, and release him. And then he barfed up this wad of feathers. So being the ecologist I am, I scooped them all up, put them into a bag, and brought them back to the lab so we could check them out under more controlled conditions. And the weird thing you found in your lab was that these weren't seabird feathers, right? Right. So that's the amazing thing is you'd expect they might be from a gull or a pelican or something like that. But it turns out they were from a brown thrasher. And we were only able to figure that out by sending the feathers to a colleague who could employ something called DNA barcoding and pull out tiny little fragments of DNA from those feathers and tell us, yep, this isn't the gull or the pelican that you thought. It's actually a terrestrial bird. So this is one of those cases, I'm always fascinated by this because there were a bunch of scientists who had field notes about sharks eating terrestrial birds before, but these were all really anecdotal reports. And you, well, you started actively looking for bird remains during your research. This, well, it sort of became a side hustle for you, right? That's exactly right. It was a side question. Of course, some of the great biologists in years past had noted that, hey, when we opened up the stomach of a big tiger shark, we saw remains of these land birds. But like you said, it was just kind of one-off anecdotes every now and then. So when I noticed it in this one small tiger shark, I then kept my eyes open for it in the years to come. And so we would opportunistically sample these tiger sharks as we were able and simply documented how many other tiger sharks were eating little birds because that was the question. Is this just a one-off random gee whiz type of occurrence or is this something that these fish are relying on habitually as part of their normal routine? And the more you looked, the more you found. You eventually found that about 40% of the sharks you examined had eaten terrestrial birds and that, in fact, they weren't even eating marine birds at all. Yeah, so I don't know which of those two things is crazier, the fact that so many tiger sharks were eating these birds or the fact that none of the birds were marine, like both crazy and very unexpected findings. And that's exactly what we were interested in, is how often is this interaction happening, A, and B, Is this something that's really important to the diet of the tiger sharks? If it is, then what's the mechanism causing these birds to be able to be eaten by these tiger sharks? I wanted to ask about that. How do the birds get there? Because these are not ocean birds. They don't, it didn't seem to me like there's any real great explanation. But you guys have hypothesized about this based on when you were most likely to find them in the shark stomachs, right? Exactly. So that was one of the really surprising things is that most of the interactions that we documented took place in the fall. 
So when we brought a bird ecologist onto the project and said, hey, help us make sense of this, help us to understand something about these birds, well, it turns out that these birds migrate during that period, and it's the time when they're leaving the southeastern United States en route to their overwintering places in Mexico. You've hypothesized also that mother sharks may birth their pups in the northern Gulf of Mexico because these baby sharks can capitalize on the songbird opportunities there. Exactly. So a lot of sharks that we know of, they have discrete nursery areas, right? So the female will come into these shallow protected lagoons and give birth to the young shark pups. But that's not the case with tiger sharks. They use more open water. And so those areas are harder to define. But if it is that these young tiger sharks are able to avail themselves of these small songbirds as part of a routine part of their diet, then it makes sense that the females may be using these parts of the northern Gulf of Mexico specifically to give birth to their young, specifically so that they have that food advantage. So sharks are really misunderstood by humans. And there's been a lot of work done in recent years to help sharks, well, seem less evil. But man, eating these pretty little songbirds, that's just cold, man. (laughs) <laughs> I know. We've, it seems like we've taken a few steps forward in terms of the public's perception of sharks, and I hate that now they get a little bit of a bad rap for eating such a cute little bird. But I think we can take solace in the fact that these birds are definitely dead when they're hitting the water, so we can therefore think of the tiger sharks as doing us a favor by removing something from the water that would otherwise be unsightly, right? That's Marcus Dryman. His recent study in the journal Ecology is the first confirmed evidence of tiger sharks regularly eating terrestrial birds. Hey, Marcus, there's somebody I want to introduce you to. Sound good? Sounds great. Well, then, Marcus, this is microbiologist and volcano explorer Karen Lloyd. And Karen, this is marine fisheries ecologist and shark wrangler Marcus Dryman. Hi, nice to meet you. Karen, it's great to meet you, too. So, guys, I think there's a lot to talk about today around oceanic exploration and where we might find microbes and the role of serendipity in science. But I wanted to start this conversation just about talking about the role of expedition in science, because for both of you, science isn't just lab coats and microbes. I think that's a really great point. In fact, listening to some of Karen's message, it was really clear to me that there are some striking similarities between our two studies. And, and the first and foremost is that both of us required a really large team that's very interdisciplinary. So as a fisheries guy, I can tell you about sharks, but I can't tell you anything about birds. So it's only through involving scientists from multiple different disciplines are we able to make these really cool findings. Yeah, I agree. I absolutely depend on the multidisciplinarity. The other, the other similarity between our two types of research was safety. I know that's maybe not such an exciting topic, but you really do depend on your colleagues in these situations for safety, for letting you know if a rock is headed your way when you're in a volcano or for, I guess, holding on to the tail of a shark, which is not something that I have ever run into in my research. <laughs> Nor have I ever been in a volcano. And I was thinking about some of these kind of similarities. You know, you and I are both working at an interface, right? So yeah. a subduction zone is, is by definition an interface between these two plates. And, and where my research took place was very much the interface between land and water because it's a terrestrial bird being consumed by a marine predator. So it's interesting that we've both been able to highlight these areas where almost two different worlds are meeting. You know, it's funny, as you were talking, 
I remember I did uh, some work in the bottom of the Gulf of Mexico for my PhD, and I was out on a cruise once in the Gulf, and there were these beautiful little songbirds that had come and sat on our deck, and it was raining, so they were sort of all puffed up, and I was talking to one of the crew members who goes out more often than I do, and I said, oh, that is so cool that these tiny little songbirds get all the way out here in the Gulf. Aren't they adorable? And he just looked at me, and he said, they're dying. You know that, right? (laughs) Okay. They get washed out there in storms, and... Great. They feed the sharks. Now I know that. That's wonderful. Yeah, and I think that's a really astute observation. You know, to me, it's fascinating that these sharks are routinely eating these little songbirds. But you talk to folks that work offshore, and they're like, yeah, we see this all the time. We see these little (laughs) birds that fly out there, and of course they get eaten by sharks. So while it's kind of a gee whiz, like, aha moment for me, I love it that other people that are in these situations all the time are just kind of like, uh, duh, yeah, we knew that. Well, that's a sweet spot, right? You've got to like, find science that makes a lot of sense to somebody, and then you've got to bring it to the fore. Yeah, absolutely. I think I almost hate to mention this because it's kind of sobering, but another obvious connection between the types of work that we've been doing and talking about today is its tie back to climate change. Right. So your work has a very clear connection with climate change. And really, the work I'm doing is talking about migratory patterns for these neotropical songbirds. And that, of course, is intricately linked to climate. And, you know, it turns out these songbirds are making departure decisions in the Gulf of Mexico based on these environmental predictors that are tied into weather like humidity and and precipitation and things like that. So even small changes in climate can have a very dire impact on the migratory patterns for these birds. Hmm. What about the sharks? Have they been moving northward? Yeah, um, that's a sad but true fact. Climate change is certainly altering the normal home ranges of these sharks. And just as you said, you know, as, as the seas gradually get a little bit warmer, the range tends to expand northward for these sharks. And that's obviously a difficult thing to document because the changes are relatively gradual, at least on our kind of time scales, but it's certainly an unavoidable fact. Marcus, you just mentioned you were a little hesitant to bring up climate, but one of the things I've noticed in doing this show for a little over a year now is that almost all conversations, if you let them go long enough, we find these connections through the issue of climate change right now. Does that feel, I don't know, does it feel overwhelming as a scientist to have that looming over you at all times? I mean, I I know, Karen, it's such a big part of the implications of your work. But again, it's just such a heavy, heavy, and quite frankly, it's a really depressing subject. Does it make for, I don't know, like a a sad environment to do science right now? Or does it give us something to drive toward and, and a great purpose to kind of rally around? I think that it is a totally rational thing to be sad about climate change. I think that if you don't allow yourself the sadness, then you can't fully understand what's going on. And I I recently um, just submitted a proposal, I don't know if I'll get it, to study some of the permafrost in the Arctic. I have a program in Svalbard going on right now. And this is the first time that I've really addressed this issue of climate change. And it really, it's just melting. Um, We're like an ice cream cone at the top. It's just melting. All the permafrost is going away and the sea ice is going away, and that is real. He'd love to say, okay, well, scientists, we're going to save us. We're going to go up there and we're going to figure out how to stop this. We're going to engineer the soil microbes to take up more carbon or something. You know, that's not a thing. That's a thing in movies. Um, All we can do is just understand it the best that we can and do whatever we can to make people realize how important this stuff is. 
I completely agree. I mean, you wouldn't be human if you didn't allow yourself to be sad. And just like Aaron said, you wouldn't be fully appreciating the scale of the problem if it didn't make you sad. Uh, That said, you know, there's certainly reason for optimism. We live in the most technologically advanced portion of society in history. And I think if we can look back at some kind of quote-unquote win scenarios, like, you know, with the ozone, you know, we actually were able to win. (laughs) You know, we were able to recognize something and be able to, you know, kind of uh, address it even, you know, if it was perhaps later than, than should have been. But it's, oh, goodness, it's daunting to say the very least. Karen mentioned earlier, you know, the the sea ice going away and, and that's going to be in years to come. Actually, it's happening right now, but it's going to increasingly happen. It looks like releasing microbes into our ocean that have been trapped for a very long time. I was wondering, Marcus, how can we anticipate that this will start impacting fisheries? Oh, you know, I was listening to a great interview you did with Chris Free, who interestingly is a colleague of mine and a good friend. But the way he talks about how global warming has impacted global fisheries, I mean, the link there is just unavoidable. And in most cases, it's a negative relationship. But there are some instances, like you said, with black sea bass, where it's a positive relationship. So only by analyzing these very long-term comprehensive data sets can we start to make predictive models to talk about what that's going to look like for us in the future? But, I mean, it's, it, it's a very scary proposition. Yeah, and from the microbial perspective, looking at which microbes are locked up in permafrost. I know I didn't come on here to talk about permafrost, but it's, you think of it as this ice block, and it is, but there are tiny little brine veins within it. So there is some liquid water within good permanently frozen permafrost, and there are living microbes in it. The evidence seems to be supporting this fact. They're not quite normal soil microbes. They're a little bit different from that. Are they going to be helpful when they wake up, or are they just going to die when the permafrost thaws because that's not their natural environment? Um, We really don't understand the implications, the microbiological implications of losing sea ice or thawing permafrost. Well, hopefully we'll understand more soon. And when we do, I hope you'll come on to chat with us about it. (laughs) Absolutely. Hey, guys, we're just about out of time. Marcus Dryman, thanks for joining us on Undisciplined. Thank you for having me. And Karen Lloyd, thank you. Yeah, thanks. You can listen to Undisciplined wherever you get your podcasts. And if you'd like to participate in this discussion, you can engage with us on Twitter by following us at SoUndisciplined. We recorded today's show in the KCPW studios in Salt Lake City. Undisciplined is produced by Utah Public Radio. Our producer is Alyssa Roberts. Our theme music is Little Idea by Benjamin Tissot. And I'm Matthew LaPlante. Thanks for listening. Now go have big ideas.